Well, if you're new with us, we are finishing off the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we are finally breaching into Matthew chapter 27. Uh, we have been in Matthew for the better part of, I don't know, what it's been, two years? Um, we started off doing a quick study of Matthew, and uh, we are finally finishing off our brief study two years later. So, so here we are in Matthew chapter 26 and 27. Let me ask you a question. Who was responsible for Jesus' death? Now, it could be argued that it was the disciples' collective fault. When the soldiers came for Jesus, they scattered. Where were they when the crowds began crying for Jesus' crucifixion? Where were they when Jesus was stumbling and struggling to carry his cross up Golgotha? Well, maybe we're being too harsh on them. Maybe we do better to lay the blame at Judas' feet. That, that probably seems a little bit better, right? After all, it was Judas who sold Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders. He was the one who sought an opportunity to have Jesus arrested. He was the one who gave the infamous kiss of betrayal. That being so, it would certainly be appropriate to condemn Judas as the one responsible for Jesus' death. Yeah, but Judas wasn't alone, was he? We mustn't forget the culpability of Israel's leaders. They maligned Jesus from the beginning of his ministry, calling him a servant of Beelzebul and trying to trap him within possible legal conundrums. They have been plotting and scheming and planning for ways to kill Jesus in secret. It was at Caiaphas' house that the charges of blasphemy were laid on Jesus and the sentence of death was pronounced. So maybe it was the high priest, the chief priest, the elders who were to blame for Jesus' death. Well, yeah, but because of their Roman occupation, they had no authority to kill him. They could do nothing more than to detain him for a little bit, maybe beat him. They needed the Roman governor's permission to do anything with execution. It was illegal for Israel's leaders to execute anyone without a Roman signature on the death certificate. It was Pilate, after all, who gave his okay for Jesus' death. It was Pilate who gave the thumbs up. It was the Roman soldiers who mocked and tortured him. And it was the Romans who made that particularly spiteful execution called crucifixion, which was meant to inflict as much pain as possible for as long as possible. That was their beautiful little brainchild. Seeing all these points of culpability then, who is ultimately responsible for Jesus' death on the cross? The resounding message of the Gospels and Acts is that Jesus' death and resurrection is all according to God's definite plan. Who's responsible for Jesus' death? I'm not saying who's culpable, who's at fault, who's at blame. God is the one behind it all. He is the one who planned the sacrifice from before time. He is the one that declared its necessity through the prophets. He is the one that accomplished the redemptive events that faithful night in Gethsemane. Behind the disciples' weakness, behind Judas' betrayal, behind the high priest's hatred, Behind the Romans' cruelty was the silent and hidden hand of God working and moving for our salvation. I want you to hear the good news here. 
Jesus's final night before his death shows us that God's sovereign plan is always accomplished despite our weakness or our rebellion. Can we just bask in that good news for a little bit? I, I tell you, you know, there, there are just times, you know, my mama used to say, Justin, did you know that there's just days that you're a turd? <laughs> my wife has said similar things like that. <laughs> I am a weak and frail person. I screw up all the time. My father-in-law has a long list of my mess up. But the good news is, God's sovereign plan is accomplished despite your weakness. You cannot mess up the plan and promises of God. Your weakness simply is not strong enough. It cannot derail his plan. On the contrary, God works through our weakness and even uses the world's hatred and to make things fall into place according to his divine promises. Even Caiaphas's hatred, as we're going to see today, falls into place to propel God's ancient plan forward. Caiaphas thought he was blocking things. And yet it was Caiaphas' resistance that propels God's plan into motion. We simply cannot foil the God of redemption in our weakness or in our rebellion. You know, one of the most endearing things about the Gospels is their complete, almost embarrassing transparency about the disciples' weaknesses and shortcomings. Do you realize there's no other religious text in the world that is this brutally honest about some of the main characters, right? You, you read Buddhism, you don't see that kind of embarrassing transparency. You don't hear about Siddhartha Gautama picking up a sword and slicing off somebody's ear, Right? You don't, hear, uh, you don't hear about the, this mass defection of Muslims when a battle comes. But in the Gospels, in the Bible, we have an almost embarrassing view of the disciples. Completely transparent. Now, in this public record, I think we see the truth about discipleship. There's no such thing as a polished disciple. There's no such thing as a polished disciple. When Matthew writes about Jesus' arrest, arrest, do we realize that when Matthew writes his gospel, he includes himself when he says, then all of the disciples fled. Matthew doesn't put parenthetically, all but me. No, Matthew wasn't faithfully hiding behind a tree watching these things. Matthew was tucking tail and running. He was one of the weak disciples, and yet he unbleakingly unashamedly says, that was me. Now, why do the Gospels record this transparent weakness? Why don't they clean things up a bit? You know, if I'm, if I'm you know, their, their general editor, if, if Matthew were to bring me his Gospel, I'm like, look, Matthew, cells aren't going to be that great when they find out that you ran from the garden that night. You know, people are going to be a little bit let down. You know, the, the Hollywood's going to have to change some of this, you know, to give some mitigating circumstances for why Peter cut off a dude's ear. And that whole thing about disowning Jesus. Peter, no, Peter's one of the main characters. You'd be better off killing a main character off The Walking Dead. 
than to say that Peter's going to disown someone. I don't know if you guys have watched The Walking Dead, but we had a Walking Dead actor coming to our church for a while. And it, I mean, anyway, it's like, it, zoom, it zaps you in. And they start killing off main characters. like, I'm done. You know, like, can you imagine? The, the Gospels do that. Un, unashamedly, character, in, in their main characters, show their failings and their shortcomings. Peter. Now, I don't think this is an attempt at false humility. I don't think this is an attempt at self-pity. I don't think this is some self-deflating filtering. I think it's an honest assessment of what's true about all disciples, including you. We are weak and prone to fall away. Even you. Even you. When the fires of hardship grow hot, disciples tend toward this fight or flight. I think we saw that in the last year, right? Some of us ran, some of us fought. Some of us fought and then ran, and then some run and then come back and fight. We tend to this fight and flight. Disciples are like that. Disciples of Jesus are that kind of flaky type of people. We're not very consistent. It's just the reality. It's not something said to shame you. It's something true of me, something true of you. We are irreversibly weak people that cannot stand on our own two feet. And we see that after Jesus' three years of ministry and what happens with his disciples in this text. Just moments after speaking about his own death and affectionately inviting his disciples to take and eat from the bread and wine, he's just told them what he's about to do for them. I'm going to spill my blood for the covenant that is made for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And then Jesus says to these people that he just said he's going to die for, you will all fall away from me because of me this night. Now the word there's scandalized. It comes from the word scandalized, right? So they're going to be scandaled in a sense. They're falling away. They're tripping over. They're stumbling because of Jesus. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, but after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, falling away in this case refers to their complete abandonment. I mean, again, that turn, tail, and run kind of abandonment. They're going to fall away. They're going to run. Whereas the disciples had at one point believed that Jesus was the Messiah, his arrest and death would shake them to the core. By the end of the night, they're all going to be scattered, hiding in fear, afraid at every little knock and brush next to the door, left in this inexpressible grief and despondency. If you want a glimpse of what this looked like, all you have to do is turn to Luke chapter 24, where you see two of Jesus' disciples that are from Emmaus express their deep disappointment with Jesus. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Can you hear the disappointment in that? Our Messiah got arrested, got beat. We watched him get nailed to the cross and we had hoped, meaning that we don't anymore. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now we're getting ahead of ourselves because he's not been crucified yet. And so Jesus tells them, you're going to fall away. You're going to run when these things happen. Peter hears it. And he hears that all the disciples will fall away, and then he arrogantly boasts, which seems appropriate at this moment. Though they, though they, I think there's a good emphasis here, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. 
Have you ever known anyone like that? Preacher starts talking about sin or temptation or weakness. And I know everybody else is weak, but not me. I know everybody else betrays Jesus, but not me. That's essentially what Peter's saying here. He simply cannot cannot fathom that he himself would ever abandon Jesus. Everybody else might, but not this homeboy. I'm simply too strong, too faithful, too great. And yet Jesus says, by the end of the night, Jesus would, uh, Peter would do arguably worse than any of them by disowning him three times. We tend to talk about Peter denying Jesus. Deny is a really weak term. Disown, renounce, repudiate would be better. He disowns Jesus three times by the end of the night. Claiming that he had never met the man and even going so far to call down a curse on himself, saying he had never met the man. Just simply unthinkable that we could ever do that. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the others were emphatic as well that they would do the same. They, yeah, Jesus, you're wrong. None of us are going to do that. We're going to be faithful. Well, he's told them that they're all going to fall away. And I can just imagine Jesus shrugging. I mean, he's the omniscient one. He knows them better than they know themselves. He says, you're all going to fall away. They're like, no, 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 no. You know, John might, Matthew might, Peter might. No, Peter's like, no, I won't. You know, they're bickering back and forth. And Jesus simply shrugs because he knows all of them, all of them will fall away. And he heads to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, there's a small little garden on the Mount of Olives, just a quiet little place to pray. It just sits opposite of Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus went. He invites his disciples to sit. He brings Peter, James, and John with him into the garden. And he tells them, he just pours out his heart. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. The word watch means to stay awake. Just simply stay awake. Some of you need that same command while I'm preaching. Could not stay awake with me for one hour? That's all he tells him. He says, stay awake. Stay awake with me. Sit. You can imagine if your friend told you, I am so sad, I feel like dying. Would you go to sleep on that friend? Yeah, call me in the morning. It's 2 (laughs) a.m. I don't think any of us would do that. But they did. They fall asleep in the garden. Jesus is so weak, so it's hard to say it, isn't it? But Jesus is so overwhelmed by his grief, by the pain that's about to come, that he falls on his face. The text uses that kind of transparent language. He falls on his face and grieves. He prays that if at all possible, God would let the cup pass from him. In other words, if Jesus had his choice, if there was any other way any other way, absolutely at all. Please, Father, not this way. He looks into the cup, the symbol of God's wrath. He smells the sour dregs of judgment and wrath against sin. And it wounds him. He weeps. I don't think any of us could really fully appreciate how bitter this moment was for Jesus. He is the perfect, perfect son of God never had done anything to deserve any kind of wrath, punishment from God whatsoever. 
He smells the sour dregs. He knows that he must be the one to drink that cup. And it troubles his heart. It wounds him. I don't think any of us have ever had a suffering that could even begin to compare to that. No hardship that could compare to that. It was not the cup that he deserved, but the cup that he alone could drink and live. So he returns to his disciples. He's just told them, my heart's burdened. I'm sorrowful. I need you to stay awake. I want your comfort. I want you to pray. And guess what he finds them doing? Sleeping. Snoozing. At his lowest moment, they're napping. This big redemptive moment in all of history. Things are about to happen that were written of all the way back in Genesis 3.15. When God spoke in the garden that there would be a son of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. All that's about to happen, and they're napping. My friends, I hate to tell you this. I sympathize with them. When it gets late at night, (laughs) thanks, Dad. When it gets late at night, at a certain point, I'm useless. I'm useless. And yet here they are in all their weakness, in all their glory, napping while the Savior is weeping. Jesus commands them. He wakes them up. So you could not stay awake with me for one hour. He just points it out. I don't think he's shaming them. I don't think he's surprised by it. I think he's pointing it out for the sake of their benefit so that they would see something about themselves. Peter had just said, I will never deny you. And yet Jesus is pointing out, Peter, you cannot even stay awake for an hour. Again, it's not a shame. It's not even a rebuke so much as it is just pointing it out that you are not as strong as you think you are, Peter. You cannot stay awake even for an hour. And then he tells him again, stay awake and pray that you will not enter into temptation. Second time Jesus says it. And yet he goes away and he prays again and they fall asleep again. This time he doesn't wake them up. He goes back and continues to pray until the betrayer comes. And then he wakes his disciples. He's here. Let us be going. As the mob comes, it's pitch black in this garden back then. You know, there's no street lights. There's no, you know, uh, light pollution from the city or anything like that. It's completely dark. So a mob coming with uh, clubs and swords and, and torches would be readily uh, uh, seen. I mean, we're talking probably a couple hundred men, if not, not more, coming to get Jesus. And the crowd comes and the disciples see this mob coming with their weapons drawn. And they see Judas and they see the kiss. And then suddenly one of Jesus' disciples whips out a sword and starts going to town. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us who this disciple is, right? I don't know if Matthew is a little better friends with Peter than John was, but John's like uh, an unknown disciple. It was Peter, right? He just wants everybody to know. And I just, you know, again, to point out just something about Peter. Peter's a fisherman, right? So, you know, they don't have rods to make this motion, right? But anyway, all that to say, he's a fisherman. That's his trade. Why did Peter strike the ear off? Guys, he was aiming for the neck, Peter is like, I'll never betray you. I'll die. You can't even hit the broadside of somebody's neck, man. (laughs) 
when they're surprised. <laughs> well, he comes off and he goes to flailing, and I can just imagine the foolishness of that moment, of what that would look like. Can you imagine if, if Jesus were to come to Ovilla, Texas, and let's just say Gethsemane were in Ovilla, and the 12 disciples were people from grace, and one of us pulled out our concealed carry and popped a guy in the foot. That's essentially the foolishness that's being done here. Now, it might look like bravery. It might look like heroism. Come on, give Peter his due. But it's not bravery. It's bravado. That's what it is. Even this moment displays Peter's weakness. He intends for it to be a display of strength. But even in this moment, in his own self-proclaimed strength, it is nothing more than weakness. Peter shows that he still has a weak understanding of God's plan. Jesus has used words like, the Son of Man must suffer. Right? That's God's plan. What happened the first time Jesus said that to Peter? Peter said, no, it's not going to. He rebukes Jesus. From the beginning, Peter seems to think that God's plan is, some, plan is something that could be changed. Jesus said, God has willed, God has planned, God has said, it must happen. The Messiah must die. And yet Peter's still saying, I can change it. He has a weak understanding of God's plan. Let it be over Peter's dead body, right? My friends, have you ever sympathized with that? You know it's God's plan for you to struggle, suffer, do uncomfortable things, love somewhat unlovable people. And yet to the very end, we're whipping out swords, hoping that we could somehow alter God's plan just a little. The very end, we just we think we can we can change what must happen instead of embracing it. And ironically, the whole point of it is he doesn't just misunderstand God's plan. He also misunderstands Jesus. He sees himself as weak, as strong. He sees Jesus as weak. Jesus rebukes him. Put your sword back into place. Put your gun back in the holster. Jesus doesn't need you firing shots for him. He doesn't need you drawing swords for him. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Peter, you want to play that game, you're going to die. That's a bold rebuke there. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? You know how many legions are? 12 legions of angels. The word there is myriad. And it's the highest number in Greek. So we don't really know how many legions there are, but basically Jesus could say a word and God would empty heaven to make war on earth. These big massive warrior angels that we see in the book of Joshua, for example, that Joshua sees and falls to the ground. These kind of angels that John just gets a glimpse of and immediately thinks this must be God and starts worshiping him. Those kinds of angels being emptied out of heaven. Jesus said, if I said the word, 12 legions of those guys would be coming. But then he says, but then, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? There's no altering God's plan. There's no assassinating Pilate, going back in history and assassinating Pilate to keep all this from happening. It must happen. 
Jesus doesn't need Peter's protection, and God's plan doesn't need Peter's edits. These things must be so. And Jesus says it. And then all the disciples scattered. Guess what? Just as he said they would. Every single one of them. Now let's fast forward to Caiaphas's palace. We've actually been there uh, in 2018, I think is when we went. That's a massive place. And we saw the place that Jesus was probably put while he was waiting uh, for trial. And Peter follows to that place and he sits in the courtyard. But then people begin to recognize him. You also were with Jesus the Galilean. Peter immediately begins to disown his friend. I do not know what you mean. What, what, what happened, Peter? Even if he must die, you would never deny him? The, the, and, and here's the thing. This isn't a big, strong, hulking soldier that he just tried to chop off his ear, right? This is a girl. Girl comes to Peter and says, you must be with Jesus. I think I recognize you. I don't know what you mean. Immediately, fearfully begins to disown him. Another girl comes to him. And she says, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And then this time he disowns him by making an oath. I swear to God, I do not know the man. That's essentially the oath that is implied here, right? Because when you make an oath, you make it to God, right? I swear to God, I don't know the man. Can you imagine the kind of blasphemy Peter's ranking up here? That he's denying God by making an oath to God. But then he takes it even a step further when another guy recognizes Peter and says that he knows the man, Peter then goes so far to call down a curse on himself. Let God strike me dead if I'm lying. I do not know the man. The good thing God doesn't answer every prayer, huh? Do you realize Peter has come from a point where his, in his bravado, I will never deny Jesus. We've all said that, right? To the point that we, he gets to where he doesn't even see Jesus's, say Jesus' name. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. My friends, I've been a pastor long enough that I know that I'm a lion in the pulpit proclaiming Jesus' name. Then I get out into the community around non-believers and suddenly, I don't know the man. What's his name? <laughs> My friends, we do the same thing all the time. We get bold in church, we sing the songs, we worship, we don't mind talking about Jesus here, but then when our neighbor really needs to hear his name, it's shh. That's awkward, we don't talk about that. My friends, I point that out because we are the Peters who disown Jesus all the time. We are the ones that claim with our lives and actions when we get outside of here that we don't know the man. Sure, we might not say that, but our lives and actions kind of reveal that, don't they? Does your neighbor recognize you as one who's been with Jesus? Does your family member, your, your sister that you haven't talked to in years, know that you are someone who has been with Jesus? Do they recognize you as someone who's been with Jesus? And then when that fact gets pointed out, do you claim, ah, oh, you know, we don't, we don't really talk about it. My friends, we, we do that all the time. And it's at that moment that, P, that Peter heard the rooster crow. And immediately, Jesus' words were proven true. Such is Matthew's description of Jesus' disciples. This is the description of Jesus' disciples. Even though all promised to be faithful, all fled. 
None stayed awake to pray with him. One attempted to stop God's plan by pulling out a concealed weapon and killing off one of the servants. And Peter, the rock, disowned him three times. Matthew is rather painfully airing out the disciples' laundry. Their overconfident self-bravado, their cowardice, their sleepiness, their rashness, their flakiness. My friends, have you ever abandoned Jesus? Have you ever disowned him? You might say, no, I've never disowned him. I've never abandoned him, and I've never, I never will. My friends, sin is abandoning God. Every single time we sin, do we not realize that in our theology and scripture, that God and sin cannot dwell together. And any time that we choose sin, we have automatically abandoned our love for God. Now when we put it in that light, the times that we choose and that we act and we think, I do not know the man, happen multiple times throughout the day. Don't they? Those moments where we disown him. We, like the disciples, I think sometimes, often, overestimate our own faithfulness. While we point to everybody else saying, they might be abandoning you, but I am not. I don't. I don't disown you. And all the while we have our secret addictions, we have our secret idols, we have our secret habits, our secret thoughts, our secret sins, all these things, but we don't see that as disowning Jesus. We only look at the disowning, the the ways that others disown him. My friends, that that is weakness put on full display. I think if you are to read this text rightly, the only way you will see yourself in this text is if you see yourself as one of Jesus' disciples who have fled. One of Jesus' disciples who have disowned him. Now, I say this, and this is actually good news. My friends, in the paradox of the gospel, you understanding your weakness is a good and right thing. It's not meant to, to, to stir up some kind of despondency or despair. This is the only place, ideally in the world, where it's okay to be weak and to say you're weak and to boast in that weakness. That's what Paul did. I boast in my weakness. You may not air it out. I will. Why is that a good thing? Because it's in acknowledging our weakness as disciples that we see the strength of our Savior. Do you realize that as we see these disciples fleeing and running and drawing out swords and disowning, that we see a a Savior who's steadfast. He's resolved. Let them run. He's going to die for them anyway. Let them disown him. You realize Jesus knew it before he went to the cross, that Peter would disown him three times. What would you do if you knew that despite all the things that you would do for your friend, that when your friend betrayed you, and you knew, what if you knew in advance that your friend would betray you, would you still sacrifice the way you do for your friend? Jesus did. He knew that you would be born in all of your sin and all of your weakness, And yet his love is stronger than your weakness. He goes into Gethsemane knowing every single one of them will run. And he still invites them to sit in the garden. My friends, he knows all of our weaknesses. And we still get invited to sit in the garden with him. 
our weaknesses do not disqualify the grace of Jesus. Your anger problem, your sex problem, your alcoholism, your proneness to gossip, your franticness when things go wrong, your ability to just fray at the end and lose your ever-loving mind, none of those things disqualify you from grace. But it highlights the strength of God's grace because he loves you even despite all of those things. We are poor representatives of a strong king. And yet it's in our weakness that his strength is proven, that his sufficiency, my friend, you are broken, you are empty, you are shattered. Jesus is sufficient. I hope if you read this story that you see yourself like arrogant and cowardly Peter, I hope you see yourself as fearful and hiding Matthew, as a disciple who is prone to run away, as someone who is prone to wonder. Do not overestimate your own faithfulness. Don't grade your own paper. You will always grade it more highly than you should. You are a disciple prone to wonder, prone to disown, prone to deny, prone to lop off ears in order to change God's plan. My friends, we are weak. He is strong. But what about Jesus' enemies? Now, it's one thing to say that Jesus is strong despite his friend's weakness, right? But what about the world that has a strong hate for Jesus, right? We're weak, and in our faith, we're weak. But what about the world that hates him with every bit of strength that they can muster? Matthew wants you to understand as you read this, that the hatred of Jesus' opponents is intense. This is hatred at its strongest. When they come to arrest Jesus, they don't send a delegation of high priests. They send a mob of soldiers with, with swords drawn. They come with guns drawn on Jesus. They come to him as if he's a robber, an insurrectionist, a murderer. They had heard him teach day after day in the temple. They had heard with their own ears uh, his, his doctrine and his speaking about the love of God and his condemnation against sin and idolatry, and yet they come to him like they're coming to get Israel's most wanted, to drag him away. Why? Because they hated him. That mob represents the hatred of the world for God. If the world had its chance, and it did, it would rally up a posse and drag off God to his execution. Have you ever thought about the world in that light? What would the world do if it had its chance to meet God face to face? Well, we see it here. Get the men together, light the torches, grab the swords, time to take him down. That's the hatred of the world. How, do you, how, how can God work through that, right? That, that, that seems just incredibly strong hatred. But let's add to the strength of this hatred. Let's just see. That's not all there is to it. Uh, we, we have, of course, these strong mob, the strong mob coming with swords and clubs and their intense hatred. But we also have Jesus' own friend, Judas, his friend, his close, affectionate, personal ally who betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, and then betrays him with a kiss. Why the kiss? 
Well, in the ancient world, and thank the Lord we don't do this now, um, but in the ancient world, a sign of affectionate friendship was a kiss on the cheek. Any of you kiss me on the cheek, I swear. Moy. But back then, back then, when you greeted your friend, you'd kiss them on the cheek. It's a sign of closeness and affection. How ironic is it that Judas approaches Jesus and gives this kiss of affection in order to present himself as the enemy? How painful would that be? That's the craziness of it. Jesus gives himself up like a lamb led to a slaughter, and it's his friend that's holding the knife. That's intense hatred. How low could you go? To, to embrace one of your longtime friends that you've, you've been raised with since childhood, and then to stab them in the back while they're there. That's hatred. But even then, Jesus still remains kind and generous. I think I would have had a lot of words to call, G, uh, call Judas. I don't think friend would have been one of them. But that's what Jesus says. Friend, do what you came to do. Do you see the intense love and patience of Jesus here? He knows that he is following a plan that has been made from before time began. He doesn't barrage Judas with, an in, with, a, with a, a bunch of insults or accusations. He simply accepts what is to come knowing that his friend is the one that's stabbing him in the back. Now, Judas' story ends with a deep tragedy. Having heard that Jesus would be condemned to death, Judas realized that he had betrayed innocent blood. He tried to change his mind, tries to give the money back, but it's too late. And then he goes to hang himself. Now, I don't know if this is Matthew's point, but in the Old, in the Old Testament, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. Okay, that was a symbol to be cursed by God. Well, there's two men hanging on a tree in Matthew. One's Judas, who decided to bear his curse on himself. And there's Jesus, who bore the curse of the world. Judas decides that he'll bear his own curse. Judas decides that he'll bear the own, his own consequences for his own sin. Instead of coming to Jesus. Why? Again, because I think there is a strong, bitter hatred for Jesus. Even in Judas. So we have seen the club-bearing mob. We have seen bitter Judas, but we can't forget about Caiaphas. Caiaphas hates Jesus with this pure animosity, just hates Jesus. The, the Sanhedrin back in those days was meant to be like Israel's Supreme Court, right? You expect the Supreme Court to be just. You expect the Supreme Court to handle cases with equity and to get to the bottom of the truth. This Supreme Court starts to trump up charges against Jesus. They're looking for anyone that can give them an excuse. And Matthew says they couldn't find anyone until they found two men who twisted Jesus' words so much out of shape, saying that Jesus said he would destroy the temple. Well, if you go back and read what Jesus said, that's not what he said. He didn't say he would destroy the temple. He said, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Nonetheless, they had the testimony they needed. And so Caiaphas comes and he asks outright, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Jesus says, you have said so, meaning I am. And even with that, 
Even with Jesus saying, I am, and I am not only the, the Christ, I am the same Christ that will be seated at the right hand of God, according to Psalm 110. I'm the same Christ that will be seated and riding on the clouds with all authority and all dominion, like Daniel 7 says. I am that Christ. The high priest rips his shirt, his robe. It's a sign of this intense, this angering blasphemy. You know, when you hear someone say something against God, he just, just makes you angry, and he's, he hears this. And Caiaphas rips his robe. Because we don't need anybody else's testimony. Everybody starts shouting and deserves to die. And then the entire mob of the Sanhedrin, these religious guys, come off of their glorious thrones up on their council seats. And they begin to punch him. Do you know how much hate you must have to spit in somebody's face? Today, you must hate somebody really bad to just walk up and spit in their face. Back then, you only spit in the dead man's face. That's the kind of hatred that we see. My friends, the world's hatred is strong toward God. They want him dead. And they're going to take him to Pilate, the only man in all of Israel that can do so. So, as we get to this end, it's not a very good picture in Matthew's gospel at this point, is it? This is kind of one of those times that if this were a soap opera... This would be, this would be really, a really bad ending. Jesus' disciples are gone and fearful. Judas, suicidal. The Sanhedrin trumping up charges. And the high priest ready to kill. This is, it's just a mess, isn't it? It's just an absolute chaos mess. Surely, where's God in all of this? Have you ever looked at messes in life and said, where in the world is God in all this? The disciples aren't doing what they should. The world hates God and increasingly hates God. My friends, I've heard that so much over the last couple of years. It's just a mess. Where's God in all this? Well, Matthew wants us to know God is in it all. If you go back to when Jesus told his disciples that they would all fall away, Jesus quotes from Zechariah 13, for it is written... You know what he's saying in that little, little phrase? You must run because it's a part of God's plan. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It must happen. You're going to run. Why? Because God planned that you must run. You, you won't be my soldiers. You won't be my bodyguards. You won't stab and, and have this Alamo type warfare in the garden of Gethsemane. No, you're going to run and you're going to abandon me. Why? Because the shepherd must be struck. The shepherd must die. We go into the garden of Gethsemane and we listen to his prayer. He says things like, my father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. Whose will was it? Not man's, not Caiaphas's, not Peter's, not Judas's, God's. He drinks the cup because things are happening as God wants them to be done. Go back to the garden and watch as Peter's sword is dripping with blood and listen to Jesus rebuke him. I could call down legions of angels, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? He looks at the mob and he says, You had your chance to take me in the temple, but you've come in the secrecy of night with your weapons drawn. Why? Because the scriptures must be fulfilled. 
He stands before Caiaphas, and Caiaphas thinks this is going to be Jesus' downfall. Jesus quotes Psalm 110, and Daniel 7 says, this is going to be his exaltation. The more they press, the higher he goes. The more they slay, all the more his resurrection is going to be displayed in glory. Even Judas's death plays a part in showing that God's will is being done, that the scriptures are being fulfilled. He betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and then throws them back into the temple. And they buy a potter's field with that. That all comes from Zechariah 11, when the same thing happened to a prophet to show that Israel had rejected its good shepherd for the price of a slave. My friends, Matthew's emphatic. God's enemies are strong. His disciples are weak. But God is sovereign. Are you weak? Are you weak? Did you look at porn this week? Did you cuss someone out this week? Did you perhaps maybe flip off somebody on I-35 this week? Don't ask my (laughs) father-in-law. Confession time for him. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't. Did you yell at your wife this week? Did you maybe put Jesus on the back burner this week? My friends, are you weak? I think you will find yes is the answer. Is the world's hatred strong? Do people want Jesus out of every corner of society? Are there people trying to pass legislation and make changes so that Jesus won't even be named among us? Yes. Are there Christians being beheaded and slain and imprisoned and thrown in the coal mines? Are there Chinese Christians right now that have to meet in secret and sing quietly because their government hates them? Yes. But not one of those things will change the fact that God's promises will be perfectly fulfilled. You cannot foil the God of redemption because it does not depend on you. It depends on Christ. So here we are, marching to the cross, witnessing weakness and rejection in all of its nasty contours. And yet we see Jesus as the king who is strong to save. My friends, I just invite you today into the simple application to rest in your strong Savior. You're weak. The world is strong. Jesus is stronger. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that somebody here has heard the good news and has found hope in the fact that Jesus is stronger. We are weak, the world is strong, Jesus is strong to save. Let us then worship him in the strength of our heart, Father, knowing that we are nothing in and of ourselves, but only in him. We pray this in your son's name, amen.